ね。This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally. Or outside the immediate area, call toll free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So glad that you can be with us. If you're a first time listener, for the next hour, we take questions as you've been studying God's word. Maybe there's a challenging passage or an issue in your life or ministry that you'd like to discuss with us. And if we can help, well, by God's grace, we'll do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone again. Locally, it's 843-525-1859. For our internet listeners in WAGP does live stream around the world 24-7. That toll-free number is 877. The call letters WAGP 980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable and you want to remain totally anonymous, you can simply dictate your question, and we're happy to receive it in that fashion as well. So uh, let us know how we can help you. Many people email us here directly into the studio. And if you'd like to email us, you can at TBL. TBL stands for the Bible line. TBL at WAGP dot net. All right, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll begin today. All right. We've got a number of questions that have already been uh, dictated. Uh, One caller wanted to know if a pastor who is preaching untruth out of ignorance will be held to the same accountability or standard as a pastor who teaches apostasy as a choice. Also, is it the responsibility of pastors who have studied the Bible to teach the ones who don't know the truth? For example, pastors in their own community who are teaching out of tradition, perhaps? Well, these are great questions and really several questions. Um, The book of Jude uh, deals with the ultimate end of apostates, as well as the book of First Peter, or Second Peter. And if you look at Second Peter uh, chapter two, you'll see there's a parallel between Second Peter two and the book of Jude because they deal with apostates. An apostate is someone who's never been a real Christian. Uh, they look like a Christian. Uh, they come into the church, and Jude warns us that they can sneak in unaware, which tells us that they look like a Christian. They talk like a Christian, but they're not. And so God is charging his people to stay alert because people can come into the church and destroy it, not from the outside, but from the inside out. And God warns us of such things. And so, for instance, how does God deal with the apostate in the end? Well, let me just read first from Jude. He said, now I desire to remind you uh, though you know all things once for all that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. They are exhibited as an example 
and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So he uses a couple of illustrations. One, when the uh, people left Egypt, it was a mixed multitude, believers and unbelievers, and some met the judgment of God. Some were literally swallowed up alive into Sheol. Uh, Then he gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, how God rained down fire and brimstone. And the Bible tells us, and of course, the discussion in the context is that of apostates. These are people who come to the church as teachers, as pastors, but they're not true examples. And God reminds us that their ultimate end is that of eternal fire. And so an apostate is someone who's come to the edge of the kingdom of God. They've heard the gospel. They understand the gospel, but they end up rejecting the gospel. And so they end up preaching a lie or living a lie. And again, they live a lie because they come in and they sneak in unaware. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, Jude undoubtedly wanted to write maybe another book of Romans. He said, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. The faith being, of course, the body of truth we call the Bible, contending earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. We're seeing this all across America in our day. Men who claim to be Christians, yet are espousing to gay marriage, the ordination of homosexuals. They have a very loose moral Uh, standard. They're not really calling people to holiness. They're entertaining uh, many of God's people who are unaware and not very discerning and they're getting sucked up into it. Uh, The other parallel passage, again, dealing with the state of apostates is uh, second Peter chapter two. And I'll just let you read that chapter on your own. But again, it, it describes the person who's come to the edge of Christianity as a teacher, as a preacher, as an evangelist, but has ended up defaulting from the faith and their end is eternal judgment. Now it's different for a pastor who maybe in his ignorance is espousing things. Uh, and I would say not heresies in terms of the essentials that would make a person a Christian. If a pastor is teaching a different gospel, it just means he's not a Christian. It's impossible for a born again believer to say, well, you're saved by good deeds and you can work your way to heaven if you're a great person. No, that person's obviously not born again. They don't even know what the gospel is. But pastors, of course, have a certain accountability. There's a number of passages that come to mind. Um, One I'm turning there right now is found in 1 Timothy 5, and they have a moral accountability. In 1 Timothy 5, uh, let me pick it up here in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So an elder is to receive honor, but double honor, especially for those that are separated as elders in the preaching, teaching ministry. Not all elders are preacher teachers, so to speak. They may shepherd the church. They may rule the church. They may be sound in doctrine and apt to teach in that way, but they don't necessarily have the gift of teaching or the gift of pastor teacher So they play a different role. And then, of course, the double honor he's talking about, among other things, is financial remuneration for the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the labor is worthy of his wages. Um, Then he says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. 
those who continue, namely elders and sin in this context, so you could certainly apply it in other contexts, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest may also be fearful of sinning. And so he's talking here about pastors, and you don't believe everything that someone says against the pastor. There are all kinds of things that people have said about me over the years. I, some lady came to our church recently, and she said, well, I just want to know why you believe you can lose your salvation. I just think you're wrong. I said, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's what I'm told. Um, one recent visitor said, well, I want to know why it is that Community Bible Church uh, examines the uh, W-2 forms of everyone who joins the church to, to see if they're tithing or not uh, for them to become a member. Well, that's not true, but someone accused me of doing that. Well, we've never done that. People who've been here for 25 years with me know that that's never, ever, ever, ever happened. So you just don't believe something. The naive believe everything that's said, Proverbs reminds us. But you take an accusation on the basis of two or three witnesses. But again, there's a moral accountability that a pastor has. So when you speak of naivete here of a pastor, we're not talking about moral naivete. And this is important because sometimes I've, you know, received phone calls and questions to search the scriptures.org. And, you know, my pastor has been caught in adultery and he's sorry. And, uh, you know, can he continue as the pastor? Well, no, because there's moral accountability. Uh, There's also a teaching accountability that a pastor assumes when he steps into that office. For instance, uh, let me turn here to the book of James for a moment. Uh, James in this chapter of scripture really deals with the tongue, but it's interesting that he starts with this verse where he says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we shall incur a stricter judgment. Wow. Why is that? Because preachers talk a lot. Uh, They use their mouths. They are professional speakers, so to speak. And so they encounter a more severe judgment for the things that they say. So when I teach as a pastor, I can't just get up and give my opinion. If I just give my opinion and I'm really a truly genuinely born again man, and I'm giving my opinion in something that is not based on the word of God, then I'm going to give an account for that someday. You know, the Bible reminds us that there is a day of coming accountability for everyone, but especially for those who are pastor teachers. Teachers encounter a stricter judgment. So it's kind of interesting because he's obviously speaking in a formal sense here, if you just think about it, because there's a sense in the New Testament that every Christian is to be a teacher. And yet he says here, let not many of you become teachers. If you were to look in the book just before James, in the book of Hebrews, where he's speaking of spiritual maturity, He makes an interesting statement. He said, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you, you all would say in the South, it's a you plural. You have need again, the Hebrew Christians that he's writing in this book, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. So he is saying enough time has transpired where you should have matured, where you could be teachers. But as a, a fault to these believers, they had actually regressed. They had gone backwards. So there is a sense in which every Christian is to teach. That's the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples, believers, converts of all peoples, baptizing them. That's what you do when a person becomes a disciple. 
And then teaching them, the teaching is what we might call discipleship, teaching them all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So the main command is to make converts. And we really can't say we're involved and engaged in the Great Commission if we're not engaged in trying to bring people to the Savior. Uh, We're just living in disobedience. And we live in a disobedient age. Most Christians no longer share their faith. Uh, The largest Protestant denomination in the country just came out this year saying they reached a 65-year low on the number of conversions or baptisms. Why? Because Christians have stopped sharing their faith. Uh, It used to be every evangelical church in America had an outreach program where every week maybe people went out and visited in the community. I'm not saying you have to have a visitation program to be successful, but the people should be involved in outreach. And there are many different levels, of course, which God's people can be engaged in. But my point is, is that these people should have matured, but they hadn't. And so one mark of maturity is your sound in doctrine. That's why in 1 Timothy 3, when he looks at the qualifications for an elder, he has to be sound in doctrine, apt to teach. Doesn't have to have the gift of teaching, but apt to teach. In other words, someone could come and ask him a basic question of the Christian faith and they don't go blank. Is it God's will for me to marry Joe? He's not a Christian, but I really love him. Well, you know, if you can't answer that, you're obviously not sound in the most basic of all doctrine. So there's the uh, responsibility to teach, which every Christian has. There's the gift of teaching, which if God gives it to you, Peter says you're to use it. First Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So if God's given you the gift of teaching, you don't say, well, James says, let not many of you become teachers. No, God says, use it. So he's speaking here of the office of teaching. So if a man steps into the pulpit and he is not prepared and he's teaching and speaking on behalf of the Lord, there's a stricter judgment that he faces. Uh, There's a stricter judgment that a pastor also faces in reference to the care of souls, which is, of course, intertwined in the pastoral ministry because the pastoral ministry is a shepherding ministry. And the principal way in which a pastor shepherds the flock of God is by teaching the flock of God. Tend my lambs, feed my sheep, obey your leaders and submit to them as they will give an account for your souls. That's a pretty sobering verse here in Hebrews chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So not only do I give an account for my own life, I give an account for those that God has called me to shepherd. So to answer your question in a nutshell, the apostate faces a judgment. It's called the great white throne judgment. And it's a very severe judgment. He is treasuring up wrath because unlike some unbelievers who are going to go to hell for their unbelief, he's helping people to go to hell by his false doctrine. But a person who's born again and steps into the pastorate, he too has an accountability. He has a judgment not to see if he goes to heaven, but to see how he will spend eternity and how he will be rewarded. And it's a very sobering time. So, you know, I meet pastors and, you know, a brother came up to me recently in church and said, well, you know, um, one pastor friend tells me that he asked God on Sunday, Saturday night, what he should preach, preach about, you know, Saturday night. That's when you, that's when you seek the Lord. Well, Lord, what do you want me to say tomorrow? You know, that's not taking seriously the illustration in Acts 6 of those who are 
commanded to give themselves to the ministry of word, the word and prayer. Um, some people use a verse out of Matthew 10 out of context where Jesus is actually speaking in the realm of persecution and you're brought before men and God will give you what to say. That's not uh, a verse that you claim for a lack of preparation to teach the people of God. That's a verse you can claim that when you are instantly brought before officials, it's unplanned, it's unwarranted in many cases, it's persecution. God will help you to say what you need to say to those people. But it has absolutely nothing to do with uh, uh, ignoring the command of Scripture to study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who's not ashamed. All right, let's go to... uh, a uh, live caller who's been waiting patiently. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Thank you very much, and thank you for your time. Thanks for calling. How can we help today? I, I was uh, looking at some scriptures in, uh, in uh, Philippians this morning, and Mr. H.A. Ironside, I, I read a lot of his commentaries. And on the uh, 11th verse of Philippians 3, he had a, a comment in there, and it says that, uh, if by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection from among the dead. Right. This last part, literal rendering. And I was wondering about this out-resurrection. I think that he's talking about the uh, rapture. He took it as the rapture, Dr. Ironside. Dr. Ironside was a a great preacher. Uh, He worked with uh, Lewis Sperry Chafer. They were just best friends in the uh, founding of Dallas Seminary. He was there from the start, and he was one of the uh, revived expository preachers in America. Uh, For a long time, expository preaching had gone out of fashion. And, of course, Lewis Perry Schaefer and a group of men uh, recognized that, and Harry Ironside was one of the first uh, teachers and professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, where I went to school, whose whole purpose, of course, was to uh, train men and equip men uh, for the preaching of the gospel. Uh, Dr. Ironside also had an outstanding ministry as the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. So um, I, I admire him greatly. Occasionally, I've read some things by Harry Ironside that I think, mm, I'm not sure I necessarily uh, buy that. Or, yeah, it's possible that the text could be saying that, but is that really what the text is saying? And so in order that I might obtain to the resurrection from the dead, it's an important verse. Um, And some take it uh, as a reference to the rapture. The King James says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Again, the NASB here reads, if somehow to obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Um, And so some some people are, you know, troubled by this verse, not for the reason you bring, but they they think it sounds a little too iffy. It's it sounds like Paul maybe is uncertain of his the uh, of his eternal future, whether or not he's going to go to heaven. And uh, certainly he didn't uh, sound uncertain earlier in the book when he says, "For me to live is Christ, and to die was gain." He clearly affirmed the eternal security of the believer. He doesn't sound iffy in chapter 3 and in verse 20 uh, of this same chapter when he he dogmatically declares that God is going to transform our body into conformity with Christ. And uh, that clearly is a reference to the rapture. Um, He has already said in the opening chapter, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul's not iffy 
in terms of our eternal security. Uh, the word here, of course, for resurrection in verse 11, interestingly, is a different word in the Greek New Testament for the word for resurrection in verse 10. The word in verse 11 has this little preposition on it, ek. Um, you, you, would, uh, uh, you could literally translate it out of. And so in passages like 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter in the New Testament, or 1 Corinthians 4, where in those two chapters, Paul uh, speaks at great length to the resurrection. He speaks of the out of resurrection. So he's speaking of a resurrection out from the dead as distinguished from a resurrection of the dead. So what does he mean by an out resurrection and, and, and why did he have some doubts about obtaining to it? Well, the word resurrection literally means to, 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 to place or to stand up. And in the mind of a first century Greek person, uh, living people were standing up uh, while dead people were lying down. And so, you know, Christians, when they buried their people, they would put them horizontally in a grave. Uh, some people who wanted to uh, deny the resurrection uh, from the grave would literally put someone vertically and upside down. Uh, it was a mockery to many first century Christians. But Christians would always plant their dead, not vertically, but horizontally in a sleeping position, affirming the biblical truth that God is someday going to take my body and raise it up. And so he is basically affirming here, I think Dr. Ironside has it here, that if I might obtain to the out of resurrection, Paul doesn't know whether or not he will for certain be alive for the rapture. He assumes it's a possibility in 1 Thessalonians 4 by the use of the pronoun we. But he knows that Christ may not come in his lifetime. But he is, I think, Dr. Ironside is right on here. And, and overall, there, there was only actually one passage I can think of I've read. And I've read a lot of Ironside over the years, usually when I teach a New Testament book, I'll read, you know, 20 to 25 commentaries uh, spanning the, typically the time of the Reformation to the present day. Sometimes I'll go back and read, you know, a John Chrysostom or whatever, but I, I can only think of one time when uh, I really vehemently differed with Dr. Ironside, but I think he's right on here. And, um, and that's what the ifiness is about, because Paul doesn't know if he's going to be alive in the out of resurrection. He knows his body's going to be resurrected. He affirms that at the end of the chapter. He just doesn't know if he's going to be raised in the out of resurrection, what we would call the rapture of the church. So that's a great question. I appreciate it. You're reading carefully and sometimes it's helpful to read a commentary and it spurs the theological juices and gets you, you moving a little bit. If you want to listen to a whole sermon on this, I've preached through the book of Philippians verse by verse. And if you go to search the scriptures.org and click on Philippians and you'll see the breakdown of uh, every book and um, I preached three or four sermons just on this chapter alone and you could listen to that and I go into a little more depth and explanation and the meaning of the Greek words and so forth but good question let's go to the next one Rick all right 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line and uh, caller dictated like to know if a pastor can marry a divorced woman and remain a pastor I would say no, um, and I would say that I would have the history of the church to back me on that. Now, it's become a more controversial question in our day because divorce has once again become rampant. 
But how did the church fathers understand a, a very important phrase that's found in First Timothy chapter three that is a qualification for both elders and deacons? And he said, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, literally a one woman, a one man woman, um, a one woman man. Excuse me. Uh, he's a one woman man. Uh, the one man woman is an alternative uh, reading of the Greek when dealing with widows in the fifth chapter who should be on the list. So in the history of the church, people have taken this phrase uh, different ways in most of the different ways are in the more recent realm of church history. Uh, everyone that you read during the time of the church fathers, and there's what we call the early church fathers and the late church fathers. The early church fathers were those uh, men in the church who wrote and left us a lot of commentary who lived shortly after the time the apostles died out. Why would I want to read them? Well, one, because they lived closer to the time of the apostles, which A, would help you to understand what some of the issues were that were going on in the early church. Of course, a lot of the things they write about concerned the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, basic fundamental doctrines that were being attacked. But when you read some of the early church fathers, they understood this in a certain way. Let me tell you first how some others have understood it. Some have said, well, this is a prohibition against polygamy or maybe bigamy. Bigamy, of course, two wives, polygamy, three or more wives. I don't think so. I don't think Paul would say, hey, look, as you purview your congregation and you're looking for someone to be an elder or a deacon of the church, just make sure they're not a bigamist or a polygamist. No, uh, they wouldn't be under consideration uh, for uh, or lack thereof for the office of elder. They'd be actually considered for church discipline. It's true. Bigamy and polygamy was practiced during the Old Testament era. But today, under the new covenant, a person wouldn't even be considered a believer. Not to mention that under Roman law, bigamy and polygamy was illegal, as it still is in the United States, though I think that's the next thing to change. I think polygamy and bigamy will probably in the next decade be legitimized. And you will see in states across America, oh, let me introduce you to my three wives. Uh, Right now it's against the law, but uh, and people still practice it illegally. But look, if if you can say that uh, a person's sexual orientation can be towards a person of the same sex and have a legal marriage, then why can't you say bigamy or polygamy? Um, a number of the justices who voted against, of course, uh, same-sex marriage did so on this basis. And they said, look, you, you're opening a door that can go in absolutely any direction you want it to go. I don't think it's a reference to pro- prohibiting bigamy or polygamy. Some have said, well, like our Catholics friends who say, well, we believe that the pastor, the priest should be celibate. And so they end up spiritualizing the passage and they say the man's marriage is not to a literal physical woman, but to the church. And the children spoken of here are the people in his congregation. And that if he is to be ordained as an elder, because a Roman Catholic priest first becomes a deacon and then he's promoted to the office of elder or priest, he has to demonstrate that he has a group of people that he is committed to and that are under his control. Well, you can make the Bible mean anything you want if you spiritualize the text. And some Christians, evangelicals, do the same thing with other passages, but that clearly is not what is in view. He's talking about a real person who's married and has kids and everything else, because the assumption in the New Testament is that most people will get married. 
Uh, some would say that uh, this phrase, the husband of one wife, is a prohibition against a single person serving in the ministry. I don't think so because Paul was single. And he said it was actually a great blessing to be single if God had gifted you that way. Uh, the gift of celibacy, as some call it, is not a spiritual gift. It's not something that God does through you as much as something that God does to you. And there are some people in this life who are wired by God where they do not need to be married. Uh, Their needs are met. uh, Their loneliness needs in a different way. And God God just, just wires them different. They're not weird. They're not homosexual or anything like that. And sometimes there are people who want to marry off believers in the church that God is destined to be single their entire lives. Paul was single, and yet Paul was an elder. He was like Peter. Peter refers to the fellow elders of the church in 1 Peter 5. He calls himself a fellow elder. Now, all apostles were elders. Not all elders, of course, are apostles. But Paul was an elder. He was a pastor, and yet he was single. And, of course, the chief elder, the chief shepherd, as he's called in 1 Peter 5, is the Lord Jesus. And he was single his whole life. So I don't think that clearly is not what is in view. Uh, Some say this is a prohibition against uh, a widower who gets married again uh, from serving in the office because he's no longer a a one-woman man. I I don't think that's in view either because Paul, when he uses the reverse phrase in 1 Timothy 5 of widows who could be considered for the list, he encourages younger women to go ahead and pursue getting married again. Uh, And I don't think he would be encouraging them to pursue something that would later disqualify them from the special honor role that a widow can get in her lifetime uh, because of the way she has served in the local assembly. Um, In the history of the church, the early church fathers, all of the Protestant reformers virtually, with the exception of a couple, took this phrase to say someone who has been married before or married someone who has been married before. Why? Because it's not that God's down on divorce. People understand divorce was rampant in the first century. It was everywhere. And that's why when the uh, leaders came and questioned Jesus in Matthew 19 about divorce and remarriage, there are two major rabbinical schools of thought in Jesus was being tested to see which school of thought he came into. And of course, he came into neither and brought it to a much higher level. And again, God is not down on divorced people. What God has forgiven and called clean, let no man call unclean. But nonetheless, God wants to model the idea. Why? Because of the pain of divorce. It is so painful. It's easier for most people to get over the death of a spouse than it is over a divorce. Why? Because as Malachi 2 describes it, it's an act of violence. It's like tearing apart two living people. So God wants to model the ideal in the pastorate. And if he can't model that, it doesn't mean that he can't be in ministry. just means he can't be in the pastoral ministry. He might be a missionary. He might uh, serve in some capacity in full-time service to the Lord. He might teach Sunday school. He might do any number of things based on the way God gifted him. But there's a difference between, say, the spiritual gift of pastor teacher and someone who serves in the office of pastor or the office of teacher, as we've already noted earlier today. So if a man chooses to do that, he chooses to disqualify himself 
from continuing as a pastor. And so that's a pretty big decision. All right, let's go to uh, the next uh, question here. Rick, where are we at? All right, our next caller would like you to explain Genesis one twenty-seven. When the Bible says, so God created man in his own image and male and female, he created them. Is he talking about making their spirit form? No, he's, uh, he's actually referring to the physical makeup of man. And God created man in his own image. And the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to this couple, to men and women, be fruitful and multiply. He's talking about the different sexes that God made. God made first the man. And then after he created Adam, who was the head of his wife from Adam, he created the woman. And of course, the Bible affirms their equality in Scripture, but that they have different roles. God breathed into man, the Scripture says, the breath of life, and God made him a living being, a living soul. And so it is true that part of being made in the Imago Dei and the image of God is that we are different from the animal world. And there are people, evolutionists, who basically want to say that man, this two-legged animal, is the highest of all evolved forms. And the Bible would say, no, we're, we're distinctly different from the animal world. You never see a dog or a cat on its knees, um, folding its paws, praying to the living God. That's something that man alone has. Even fallen man has a capacity and a desire to potentially worship God because he's made in the image of God. And when God made them, he made them male and female. He's talking here about the physical side of it. There's a lot that has to do with being made in the image of God. And you might want to go back and go to searchthescriptures.org and click on the book of Genesis. And I did, I think, about 60 sermons on the book of Genesis and listen to the sermon on Genesis 1 and what it means to be made in the image of God. But He also makes them male and female, and both are made in God's image, both men and women. And it's male and female, and he made them male and female. Why? So they could procreate, be fruitful, and multiply. He didn't make two men to procreate. He didn't make two women to procreate. It takes a male and a female to have a baby. And so there's no such thing as um, people who are, you know, transgender. I tell people, you know, I had someone recently, they said, my son's transgender. I said, he's not transgender. I said, just forget that. He's not transgender. If you want to know what sex he is, look between his legs. He's he's a boy. He's not transgender. There is no such thing. And if you want to listen to this new teaching, and remember the Bible says in the last days, there would be doctrines of demons. That's what that is. The transgender teaching is a doctrine of a demon. And our government is pushing it all across America. Uh, This year, we've introduced transgender bathrooms in our university campuses. We're moving towards our public schools. It's just a matter of time before it's standard fare. Why? Because some local school boards... And some state legislators will listen to the doctrine of a demon rather than to the word of God. And it's very, 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 very sad. It's a sad day we're living in, but it's a day that God prophesied would happen at the end of time. 
and we're seeing it lived out, fleshed out right before our eyes. Who could have ever imagined? Who would have ever imagined even 25 years ago that there was uh, of the word transgender? Who would have heard the expression fluidity of the sexes? Nobody would have because it hadn't been invented yet, that wickedness, so to speak. This whole transgender thing is a doctrine of a demon, and it's, a, and it's something that has stepped into America. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. I'm not saying it's a brand new sin. I'm just saying there's a new expression of it like we've never seen before, where we think that if we're, you know, savvy and on top of things, that um, we'll believe these things. Um, look, right now we're protected as churches. We don't have to have transgender bathrooms. But do you know what? The day is coming. The day is coming when we will probably be asked if we want to keep our tax exempt status that we have to have transgender bathrooms. I don't want their tax exempt status. They can keep it. I'll pay taxes on everything. Uh, If it means that our people who tithe to the local assembly can't get a tax deduction, then I won't get my tax deduction. I'm not going to acquiesce to the ways of the world in order to please the world. And so these days are coming and and more and more things are being challenged. The rights of so-called men and women. You know, we're having a men's wildlife supper. When you go online, we have men's wildlife supper. This is an event for men. But, you know, we've had 40 women register. I mean, can they not read? Um, Now, they may want to show up and, and we won't let them in the door. You say, that's cruel. It's not cruel. Look, we've got women events and we have men events. And it's part of uh, Christianity that there's a distinction between the sexes. And if a woman tries to show up to hear Tim Tebow, she's not coming in the door. I don't care how mad she gets at me. I'll make sure we have our bouncers there. She's not coming. So don't bother to register, ladies, because you're not going to get in. You say, that's discrimination. Yes, it is. We discriminate that God made some to be male and he made some to be female. And there are some things that males should only do in the local assembly. And there are some things that only females should only do. Is it so odd that we've come? I mean, it's unbelievable. We've come to the place in the history of the church where women just can't get together and have a woman's event or that men just can't get together and have a men's event. Isn't that sad? You know, I won't be at all surprised if the local TV stations come because I know they'll come. They come to all our wildlife suppers, whether it's a Jerry Falwell or a Mike Huckabee or a Joe Gibbs or or Governor Beasley or whoever we have as our speaker. They most of the time come uh, just because it attracts a lot of attention. And I guarantee there'll be some woman this year because it's different from the last one because this whole new doctrine is being espoused and pushed Why aren't you going to let women in? And I won't flinch to tell them, look, we love women at Community Bible Church. Women play a special role in place amongst the community of born-again evangelical Christians. But this is a men's event. And it's it's very, very sad that um, these kinds of things are even issues. Fortunately, we're still protected. It's a religious expression. It's a religious freedom that we can exercise. So if somebody wanted to throw a lawsuit, they don't stand a chance. So it's still a religious freedom. But I'm afraid all this is going to change. Things are changing fast. And the church is coming under increased persecution. So wake up, church. Guard your own hearts. 
Make sure that you're in a church where the pastor is opening the Bible and not giving his opinion. We have churches now in Beaufort that espouse homosexual marriage. You say, you got to be kidding me. I'm not kidding you. We have two Presbyterian churches here in a Baptist church that won't take a stance. You won't take a stance, Mr. Baptist church pastor. You've taken a stance. You're basically saying you're in favor of it. If you can't man up and say what God says, you shouldn't be a pastor. Anyway, it's the day we live in. Uh, let me get off of that soapbox and let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, eight four three five two five one eight five nine or toll free eight seven seven nine two four seven nine eight zero or email us at tbl at wagp dot net. A caller would like to know why you say there is no such thing as an atheist. The caller has a family member who says she is. So, what scripture do you use to discredit this? Well, it's a good question. It's a fair question. And I recommend people, if they're not a member of a local church, to get grounded in the basics. And this is what I would call a fundamental question of Christianity. When someone becomes a Christian at Community Bible Church, we have a 45-week course. It's called the Discovery Class, and it's structured so that a person can begin any week they want. They could walk in at week 15, go weeks 15 to 45, 1 to 14, and get the whole class and get grounded in the essentials so they can mature in their faith. And so one section of the course deals with Christian apologetics. And this is one of the apologetic questions that we address um, under the question, what about people who've never heard the name of Jesus? Does God send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior whom he has never heard of? And so to be able to answer that question biblically, you have to first ask, um, what does God show about himself to people? And there's a principle found in both Testaments, what's called general revelation. General revelation is a theological catch word like the word Trinity or eternal security or original sin to describe a biblical truth. And general revelation is that revelation or information that God gives himself to all people in some way, shape, form, or fashion. It really comes in, in two or three principal ways, through the creation, through the conscience, and through God's care for mankind. In the creation, it says this uh, in Romans chapter 1, that which is known about God is evident within people, within them. He's talking about humanity. How so? For God made it evident to them to people, to all of humanity. He's describing the unrighteousness of men for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. How so? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, Paul is saying no man can say, is there a God? Does God exist? Because the creation shouts that there's a creator. Every person is made unique. Every person has their own fingerprint. No two fingerprints on the face of the planet of seven plus billion people are identical. No two snowflakes that fall from the sky are identical. God made in his creation, his, uh, an expression of his own attributes. He is shouting, I exist, I live, my eternal attributes, my divine nature are clearly seen through the things that I've made. Whether you're looking at the Swiss Alps or you're looking at my dad, I would, as an ophthalmologist, I would love to just listen to him tell me about the human eye. 
and its intricacies and how it was designed. Um, and, and no one could deny that, that there was a designer because of the design that you look at. This watch on my wrist has 150 working plus parts in it. I don't believe it just sh- someone shook up these parts in a bag for 5 billion years and out popped this watch. No, there is a, a design that points to a designer. The creation points to the creator. Now, people can suppress that truth for even though they knew God. Again, contextually, who is he talking about? He's talking about raw pagans. He's talking about raw pagans. For even though they knew God, knew God in what sense? They knew of his existence. They didn't know God like we know God when we're born again, when Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's speaking here of God's existence. In fact, in the second chapter of Romans, He will again speak to people who've never seen a Bible, so to speak, and they've never heard the word of God uh, preached. And they're called Gentiles, which is used in the Bible in two ways, either A, of someone who's non-Jewish, or B, of a raw pagan. For when Gentiles, as it's used here of a pagan, who do not have the law, they don't have the scriptures, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. How so? And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So the Bible teaches from without God has shouted, I exist. And from within, he's already stated that earlier. I just read for, 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 um, he says, because that which is known about them is evident also within them. So they, they can understand it in their mind. They can understand it in their heart and their conscience, as we might say. When you do what's right, your conscience applauds you unless it has become what the Bible calls a seared conscience or what the Bible calls a callous conscience or what the Bible calls even an evil conscience. You know, I have some calluses on my hand and if I take a, a pen, I don't feel anything there. Why? Because the, the nerve endings... Uh, can't be uh, touched because of the callus around the nerves. I have on one arm that I got caught in a lawnmower when I was a teenager where there's a section of my arm, there's no feeling at all. And if I'm not caref- careful, if I left it on a hot burner, it would cook and I wouldn't know it. Um, and so some people, they they have a seared conscience. They're, 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 the very nerve endings through repeated habitual sin have been burned out. But that's not the way it began. What happened when they began is they knew there was a God such that they felt guilty when they did what was wrong and they felt affirmed when they did what was right. Well, who are they pleasing or displeasing? The God who made them. So this is why the Bible assumes that all men know there, are, there is a God. Uh, the Bible devotes one half of one verse to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so God assumes that all men know about himself and even the reprobate that God gives over to an upside down mind as he describes this threefold downward spiral in Romans, the first chapter. He concludes that chapter by saying, and although they knew the ordinance of God, even that person who is an utter rebellion, whether it's a murderer or a homosexual or uh, whatever it might be, He still knows the ordinance of God. He hasn't lost all perception of God. So the guy who tells you he's an atheist, he's a liar. 
That's what he, he's a liar. He is lying to himself and he is lying to you because in his heart of hearts, he knows there's a God. I remember a guy knocked on my door one night 35 years ago when I was a campus pastor at the University of North Carolina. And he said, I just want you to know I'm here because my girlfriend sent me over, but I'm an atheist. Within 10 minutes, he said, I'm an agnostic. Within 20 minutes, um, he said, I'm not an atheist at all. I know there's a God. He understood the reasoning here in Romans 1 and 2. And within an hour, he gave his life to Christ, and he's an elder in a church today. So there is no such thing as an atheist. It, when you meet someone who says, I'm an atheist, you are talking to someone who has a moral problem in their life. They're either being sexually immoral or abusive of their bodies with drugs. There's some moral problem. They're, they're maybe being dishonest and stealing from their boss. There's some moral problem. And so the only way to deal with that immorality is to suppress the truth that God has given to them. But they're not atheists. And so that's why I say the, you don't see, do you ever see one verse anywhere in the Bible even in the apologetic sermons in the New Testament, anyone ever trying to defend the existence of God? Of course not. Never, never, never. Um, now, Paul might appeal to natural revelation or general revelation. Uh, the, um, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, they, they called it natural revelation. Same, same term, same meaning. You know, in him, in God, we live and move and find our being. But they never, ever defend the existence of God. It's assumed, it's assumed in the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So all the apologetic books to sit there and try to prove to a person why God exists in many ways are in vain. Now, I, I'm not against uh, arguing what Paul says, why they know God exists. But to say, well, let me prove to you why they already know God exists. But you could certainly appeal to reason and say, well, you know, the Bible says that you're really not an atheist. And let me give you two reasons. Let me give you three. One, the creation of the world. You know, there's a God. You see his fingerprints all over the creation. Number two, you know, there's a God because there was a time when your conscience either affirmed you or bothered you. Who are you pleasing or displeasing? And third, you know, there's a God because of his care of creation. God in the Sermon on the Mount what the reformers called the general grace of God or the common grace of God uh, shows his care and his love and his compassion in allowing the sun and the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. There was a third dimension of God's existence. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one. Okay, I think we've got time for one more. A caller would like to know whether it honors God for a Christian couple to use birth control to limit the size of their family. Well, you know, uh, it's an important question, and I discuss this with couples when I counsel them uh, to be married. I think, one, we need to fundamentally affirm in our minds, and part of growing as a Christian is to have our minds renewed what the Scripture says, that children are a blessing from God. That's what the Scripture says. Children are a blessing from God. They are a gift from Him. And I don't, you know, meet many Christians who say, God, you know, my health is just too good. Would you stop blessing me? I, I've had enough good health. Stop it, please. Or, you know, Lord, you, you've really blessed us materially. I, we, you know, stop, stop blessing us. No, we don't do that, but we're not consistent, are we? You know, God, I, I've got one child, but I don't want any more. Uh, no, somehow our society has convinced us that children really are not a blessing. And part of becoming 
a mature Christian is having your mind renewed according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. How do you get your mind renewed? You learn what scripture says and you let God say what he says about children. And so in our culture, there's an inconvenience to having a child. And so 60 million Americans have been aborted in our abortion bills across the country. I don't know, maybe 150 million people are missing because those people, many of them would have been married and had children and even grandchildren by now. So we have a lot of Americans missing. And the reason we've been able to survive as a nation financially is because we bring in so many outsiders from other nations of the world because we have interrupted the natural flow of life as God designed it. Even the Chinese are seeing problems now. They have all these men who can't find a woman to marry. Why? Because of the one child policy. So what did they do under the one child policy? Well, if you had a girl, that girl couldn't carry on your name. So they left the girls out in fields to die. And there are ministries in China that would go and get children and they would rescue these children, but they would leave them to die. Or if they had some defect, so to speak, um, just leave them to die. And so now they have a real problem in China. Rape is on the increase. Why? Because men can't meet that physical need in an honorable way in marriage because there's no marriage material. And so now China has just recently passed uh, that you, you can have at least two kids now. Now, a lot of the Christians have just rebelled against the one child only law, and they've had two because they're going to do what God says. So I know I'm here at the tail end, and I want to give this, um, this question the satisfaction uh, that you need. But one, it begins with recognizing that children are a blessing from God. I think I'm just going to pick it up in the next um, segment that Lord willing will have in our next gathering together because it's too important a question and I don't want to cut the time short uh, to answer it. Uh, we have about 30 seconds left before we go to the music, but let me just say that uh, if you are living in Buford County and you don't have a church home, I'd like to invite you this Sunday to Community Bible Church. I'm going to talk about how to have a spirit-filled Christmas. If you're a man and you would like to come to our Men's Wildlife Supper, you can, but we ask you to bring someone who is still searching for God, uh, someone who's unchurched, someone who's not a Christian. Bring them to hear Tim Tebow. You have to register online, register your friend, print out your ticket. Uh, you'll want to have your ticket to be able to get in. And so that's coming up in February. Uh, we have over 700 registered yet, and we really haven't even started to promote it. Uh, so there's an opportunity there for you. If you're living in the Rincon-Pooler area and you're looking for a church, we're looking to start a new church in 2016. Go to communitybiblechurch.us forward slash Pooler and fill out an interest form and, and we'll be communicating with you early in January of next year. We're out of time. We'll start with this question next time, Rick, so make a note of it. Thanks for being with us today as we have searched the scriptures. Mm-hmm. 